The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And with that kind of mindset in which politicians don't know if they will be here tomorrow, but they know they are here now, it's very difficult to solve the situation. That's why I was saying the main problem in Peru is that we not only have no parties, we have no politicians. We just have people that are in power for some short term, right? Without medium to long term thinking, it's impossible for democracy to work. And that's what you're seeing in Peru. I'm Quinta Jurassic, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 20th, 2022. On December 7th, Peruvian President Pedro Castillo attempted to dissolve Peru's Congress and implement a state of emergency. His dictatorship lasted only a few hours before he was impeached by Congress and arrested, making him the fifth president to leave office in Peru in five years. Since Castillo's arrest, Peru's crisis has spiraled further, with protests in the streets and a violent response by the police and military that has left 25 people dead. To understand what's going on right now in Peru, I spoke with Rodrigo Bernachea, a 2022-23 Santo Domingo visiting scholar at the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies at Harvard, and an assistant professor at the Departamento de Ciencias Sociales of the Universidad Católica del Uruguay. We talked about how and why Peru ended up here, the fragile state of the country's democracy, and why Rodrigo thinks that Castillo's attempted dissolution of Congress was the most ill-planned coup d'etat in Latin American history. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 20th. The political crisis in Peru. The situation in Peru is changing pretty rapidly, so I should start by saying we're recording this on the afternoon of uh, Monday, December 19th. Just to begin with, and we'll, we'll dive into the details, but can you give listeners a, a high-level overview of what is happening in Peru right now? Of course. So this all started on the 7th when Pedro Castillo launched this failed coup d'etat, perhaps the most ill-planned coup d'etat in, in Latin American history. And um, he had no support of his ministers, no support in the legislative, no support from the military. And nevertheless, he tried to close Congress. He tried to uh, reorganize the judicial system, basically intervene all powers, right? And call for a new constituent assembly. 
And within two hours, he was in custody of the police. And he's being now charged with a series of crimes. And um, his vice president, Dina Moluarte, is now the new president. Things, as you say, are changing rapidly. After Castillo was put in custody, there was some protests, and those have been growing for a while now. Uh, we seem to have reached kind of like um, like protests have peaked. Now are they, are, are they starting to come down uh, in number and intensity. And protests are basically looking for three things. The vast majority of protests seem to be uh, demanding for Congress to be closed and for new elections. A second, smaller group is asking for a constituent assembly that could write a new constitution. And a group even smaller is asking for Castillo being restituted to the presidency, right? So that's what's happening. And um, Dina Boluarte took over uh, the presidency on, the, on that same day. And she's putting together a coalition uh, to support her that for the time being seems to be leaning right and relying heavily on the military. So that's the current situation in a nutshell. I have to say, the most ill-planned coup d'etat in Latin American history. That's some stiff competition <laughs> right yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, it is. So so let's rewind to when Castillo uh, first sort of appeared on the political scene. Tell me a little bit about him. Who who was he? How did he become a figure in Peruvian politics? Okay, so Castillo was basically unknown nationally for national politics perhaps two, until two or three weeks before he won the election. In that sense, very similar to Fujimori in 1990, who was also like basically an unknown, right? A complete outsider. And then he won two weeks after. Castillo won the first round of the election with less than 20% of the votes. And um, Keiko Fujimori, Alberto Fujimori's daughter made it to the runoff with, I think, less than 15% of the vote. So it was a very fragmented election, right? Castillo was running for a Marxist-Leninist party called Peru Libre with the basic kind of rhetoric that Peru has seen many times and Latin America has seen many times that you could sum up with the label of populism. It was a discourse that had this divided society between in, in two camps, right? The corrupt elites and the people. Uh, and these people that were being victimized by the elites was going to be vindicated by Castillo. I would say he's, he was not tremendously popular, but in a very fragmented political field, he amassed enough support to make it to the runoff. And once he was there with Keiko Fujimori, Keiko Fujimori did the rest of the work. Meaning, Keiko Fujimori was the most rejected, despised politician 
in Peru's history. She had the highest level of anti-vote in Peru. And uh, for a while now, because she has made it to the runoff with other uh, candidates that then became president, people have been saying that make it, making it to the runoff with Keiko Fujimori is like by practically becoming president, right? Uh, she lost to Ollanta Humala in 2011, who was at the time associated with a populist left kind of brand. And then she lost in 2016 to Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, who was branded as a right-wing neoliberal technocrat. She's lost elections. By 2021, she had lost elections with a populist leftist and a technocratic right-wing candidate. And now she was facing this uh, new candidate, Pedro Castillo, which was, again, left-wing populism, but he had a very a much more peripheral character than any other outsider before. Castillo was not part of the political establishment, but also he was not part of the social, economic, or cultural establishment. He, conceptually, the best way to put it is, he was the most peripheral candidate we've ever had, right? And nevertheless, Keiko lost to him too, right? For 40,000 votes. And that was it. And so for for a little bit of backstory here, for listeners who aren't familiar with uh, Alberto Fujimori and his his daughter, can you just fill us in on what the significance of that name is in Peruvian politics? Yes. So Alberto Fujimori was our most successful populist outsider in 30 years. Fujimori came to power in 1990. He was running an populist anti-establishment campaign. Uh, by that time, Peru had 10 years as a democracy after the transition from military government. And the establishment was, let's say, three or four political parties that were rather weak. Peru has never had strong parties, which is why, really, we are in the situation right now. But we never had really strong parties. The, the strongest party that we ever had was El Partido Aprista Peruano, El APRA. But Fujimori, running against the establishment in a context of a deep economic crisis by the end of the 80s, and with a significant part of the country under control of the leftist guerrilla movement, Sendero Luminoso, you know, these outsider who promised to fix the country's problems and end, uh, put an end to the, to the establishment that had been shown to be incapable of ending, of, of putting an end to, to these two crises, was very appealing to many. So he won. Uh, he made it to the runoff with Mario Vargas Llosa, who was identified as the establishment candidate, even though he was also an outsider. And he won with the votes of the poorest and most indigenous parts of the country. And once he made it to the presidency, two years after that, he launched a coup d'etat, a self-coup, right? A self-coup. He made this alliance with the military and closed Congress, reorganized the judiciary, 
uh, called for a new constituent assembly, for a new uh, constitution to be written, and he became super popular. Uh, during his government, hyperinflation was put to an end, and uh, Sendero Luminoso was also stopped for the most part. So he became widely popular. He was our first or our most successful populist president. After that, he increasingly became authoritarian, as populists usually do when they become successful. By 2000, there was little trust in elections by the opposition. The government uh, used all its control of money and state resources to uh, make the playing field as unleveled as possible to facilitate Fujimori's victory. But eventually, he fell from power uh, due to a corruption scandal. Some years later, his daughter, Keiko Fujimori, became uh, an important politician too. Fujimori, even though he fell, remained popular, right? To this day, he's popular, I would say. So it was uh, his daughter, Keiko, who kind of like continued with the Fujimorista movement. And uh, she's been, I would say, Fujimorismo and Keiko Fujimori have been the most stable feature of, of Peruvian politics in, in what's basically been a very unstable scenario. So in the 2021 elections, as you say, Castillo wins against Fujimori. He comes into office. He becomes the president in July 2021. Obviously, he is not in office very long before he is eventually impeached and forced out. Walk me through what happened in that period when he's in office. How, how did we get to the point where he is attempting to dissolve Congress and then impeached and arrested? All right. I'm going to step back a little more and go back to 2016. It's, it looks like too long back, but it's not really. If you, if you go to 2016, when Keiko Fujimori lost to Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, you already have some characteristics in, in Peruvian politics that are going to replicate in the following years and that will lead to this scenario of instability. But then, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, who was this right-wing technocrat, won the presidency, but he had not, he didn't have a large group of Congress, Congress people to support him. His party was really weak and didn't have much support in, in the legislature. So a game of constitutional hardballing started between executive and, and legislative power. Kuczynski was constantly threatened with some sort of impeachment. In Peru, we have this institution, it's called vacancia presidencial. It's not exactly an impeachment, but it's, it's something like that. Kuczynski was threatened with that by the opposition, the majority of which was Fujimorismo, right? Eventually, tensions lead to Kuczynski's resignation. He resigned before he was, like, he was going to be removed by Congress using this institution of vacancy, this sort of impeachment. So he decides to resign. He decides to resign before they do that. The reason, at least the, the stated reason why he was removed was because of this corruption scandal linked to Odebrecht, which if you've been following Latin American politics, it has shaken the entire region. Eventually, his vice president comes to power, 
Vizcarra, and the same kind of problem emerges. This constitutional hardballing against between president and Congress starts again. Eventually, Vizcarra dissolves Congress, which is also something presidents can do constitutionally if their cabinets are denied confidence twice. He calls for new elections, a new Congress uh, comes to power, and then Congress removes Vizcarra. Hmm? There was no other vice president to rise to the presidency, so the president of Congress takes over. He's also uh, removed from power by massive protests, demanding new elections. He eventually concedes. There's a transition president. New elections are called for, and in those new elections, Castillo comes to power. So now we have five years of accumulated constitutional hardballing between legislative and, pre and the presidency. Castillo wins the presidency, but Fujimorismo and a, a group of right-wing parties and allies to Keiko deny him victory. They do not concede. They claim fraud. There was no evidence of fraud, not systematic evidence, but they claim fraud anyway. And as you and your listeners may know, in this day and age, you can believe whatever you want regardless of the facts. So lots of people and lots of politicians rallied around these um, accusations of fraud, trying to deny the fact that Castillo had won. Eventually, since there was no evidence of fraud, Castillo becomes president. But already the opposition, an important part of the opposition, had the, the, the impulse to deny Castillo with legitimacy, right? Deny him any legitimacy. So continuing with the cycle of five years of executive and legislative playing this game of constitutional hardballing, Castillo uh, was also pressed once and again with vacancia, with being removed. And Congress was more or less subtle way being threatened with being dissolved too. Castillo lost popularity really rapidly uh, due to a set of corruption scandals and a very inept administration, I have to say. It's, it's really hard to describe it in any other way. Um, so this combination of corruption and ineptitude from an outsider that really had no connections of, to the levers of power in Peru due to his peripheral character, as I was saying before, made him very weak very quickly, right? Nevertheless, he had just enough power in Congress, enough number of Congress people to prevent Congress from removing him from power. They tried once and again and again and again, stretching the Constitution as much as they could to find a way to remove him, but they couldn't. And for some reason that still is really hard to understand, Castillo, perhaps thinking that this time he was going to be removed, he launches this failed coup, uh, self coup, and the Congress and Congress now had, you know, a constitutional reason to take to remove him from the presidency and so they did they got enough votes and and the rest is history
And he was also arrested while fleeing, I believe, because he was caught in in Lima traffic, which is very relatable to anyone who's ever been in Lima traffic. Right. For anyone who's been in Lima, they know that uh, Lima is well known for two things, delicious food and horrible traffic, right? (laughs) Uh, We should put them together. Perhaps cabs should offer people food while they're stuck in traffic. So, So what is he arrested for? Like, what is the charge? One of them, I think, is rebellion. It's basically, you know, raising up in arms against the government and trying to change the form of government. That's the that's how I how they are legally framing what happened when he launched this failed coup d'état. Perhaps there's one or two other charges, but that's the most important one. And it, this is a really sui generis situation, right? Because uh, some people are claiming, well, but you know, Congress should not have. Uh, or, or they shouldn't have charged him before Congress with the, this and that procedure and so on. But, you know, it's, 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 it's a self-coup. It, it's, he's trying to dissolve Congress. There were some, let's say, legal gaps or there was some level of legal uncertainty about how to proceed. But it was so blatant, right? It was televised. It was a crime televised live that kind of like provided enough legitimacy for him to be removed from office and put in, put in custody uh, before anyone could uh, react. So that, yeah, it's, it's still legally being debated what happened, what it means, how to proceed. But as I was saying, it, it was so blatant that nobody, nobody was against what was happening. So as, as someone from the U.S., I'm going to Take the take the approach that people from the U.S. always like to take, and and make this about the United States for a second, and say right, that, right, that what, what you're describing. So you know, uh, a president who is trying to you know prevent the Congress from performing its functions uh, commits a crime on television. Right. Uh, now now there's a question uh, is impeached. Uh, now there's a question about you know charges being leveled against him for. Yes engaging in that kind of rebellion, that sounds pretty familiar uh, right, to, to right, me right. as an American. Right. I'm guessing that if I asked you to talk about that framing, your answer might be that, you know, it's it's a mistake to import a U.S. political framework right. onto a right, Peruvian right. crisis. Yes. But I do want to push you and, and ask that because the, the right. comparison, the way you framed it seems very clear. Of course, of course. Yeah, every country uh, looks at this from, from, from their language and their experience, right? So for what I've seen and the way some of the news media in the U.S. have covered this, Peru seems kind of like an exemplar democracy that reacts appropriately to remove a president and charge him with crimes when he tries to launch the self-coup, right? And hence, this is showing that democratic institutions are strong, right? And I think that's a serious mistake. I think... What happens in Peru, and it's happening for a while, uh, and if you, you can see that because of the description of, of instability that I gave you, that it's punctuated by attempts uh, of would-be autocrats to concentrate power, is that Peru's democracy is not resisting because of the strength of its institutions. It's resisting or surviving because of the weakness of their would-be autocrats, right? And I wrote a piece last week on this, and I called this phenomenon democracy by default, following the work of a political scientist, uh, Lukan Wei, who described the situation in Ukraine before the war uh, and characterized the political system there as pluralism by default. 
it basically means that democracy survives because, you know, every actor is too weak to eliminate the other, right? But none of them really have democratic convictions and none of them have the capacity to establish democratic pacts for, for democracy to survive in the long run, right? But they are weak enough to not being able to amass support and form pacts and be popular enough to eliminate democracy or form some sort of covered authoritarianism with, with institutional, with, with elections formally still in place, they don't have the power to do that, right? So what you have is this Peruvian situation in which you have the incapacity to establish an authoritarian regime and at the same time, an ungovernable democracy. And both have the same origin, the weakness of political actors, right? No party, not even an individual in Peru right now, has the capacity to represent a significant portion of the population. And that is why what we see on the streets right now has this chaotic form in which some people demand one thing, the others demand this other thing, and so on. Because there's no leadership. I don't, I'm not even talking about parties again. I'm talking about individuals, right? Peruvian politics has no parties and no politicians at this point, I would say, right? And that can channel conflict, that can give it a language, that can make it processable by the political system, right? So yes, Castillo's attempt was not successful. Just like his, his uh, opponents attempt at denying him with the presidency on, in 2020 was not successful. And just like the attempt by the former president of Congress, Manuel Merino, to take over power after removing Vizcarra was not successful, and so on and so forth. And Fujimorismo attempt at removing Kuczynski and governing from Congress was not successful, right? So nobody can stabilize power. And that's why democracy survives. And that's why democracy is ungovernable. So I want to go to the, talk about the protests in a minute. But before we, we do that, what changed from Fujimori's self-coup to today? Because obviously he was you know, capable of having a, a successful coup and of governing as an authoritarian. How has the political system shifted to where we are today, where, as you say, there, there are no parties, there are no politicians, the situation is completely ungovernable? So comparing 2022 to 1992, there, like, I would say there are two important differences. One was that Peru in 1992 was facing a deep, deep crisis, right? As I was saying before, we had hyperinflation, hyperinflation, like currency would lose value in a matter of days, right? That's on the one hand. On the other, we had this leftist guerrilla movement, Sendero Luminoso, uh, that used terrorist tactics, uh, but had control of a significant share of territory, and it felt like it could succeed at some point, right? And um, Sendero Luminoso had the particularity among other, like that distinguished Sendero Luminoso from other 
armed insurgents in, in, in the region, uh, that the, the one thing that distinguished Sendero was that it was particularly uh, violent against civilian population, right? So this was not a popular kind of armed uh, guerrilla movement, and it was not also at war with an, uh, with an authoritarian or dicta- authoritarian regime or a dictatorship, which was most of the times the case in Latin America. This was a democracy that was facing this radical and bloodthirsty uh, guerrilla movement. So those two crises, the hyperinflation and Sendero Luminoso, made people really willing to accept and approve desperate measures. So Fujimori's coup was very popular, very popular. There were no national surveys at the moment. There was only, I think, a a survey at the Capitol, and it found that 80% of the population approved of the coup. So that's one thing. And the second thing was that Fujimori had these allies in the military that, you know, they were conservative right-wing forces, right? De facto power in Peru, no surprise, is conservative and right-wing. The military are an important de facto power, right? They still are. So when you are facing a leftist guerrilla movement that is producing this bloodshed in the country, your natural ally is going to be this de facto power, the military. So when he launches his coup d'etat, he has allies in the military and mass support coming from people wanting a solution to the economic crisis and to the violence crisis. Castillo had neither. Castillo had no support of the military, right, who actually saw him and and his party uh, with some distrust. And there was no crisis similar to that or comparable to the one in 1992. Sure, we had COVID and some level of recession, but it was not comparable to that. So there was no social, political, or military basis for this coup, right? There was simply no no way to make it successful. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So let's talk about the protests. Initially, um, at least in uh, reporting in in U.S. major newspapers, what I saw in the days immediately after uh, Castillo's impeachment and arrest was reporting about how this transition of power had been peaceful. Like you said, that it was kind of a success story for Peruvian democracy, that, you know, Dina Boluarte had taken office without real incident. And then a couple of days later, uh, as you said, protests began to gather in the streets and there are increasingly disturbing reports of military and police engaging in serious violence against protesters. I think yes. that the last time I saw over 20 people have been killed. So how did we we get from this initial seemingly peaceful transition to these protests and violence against protesters? What happened? Well, it was very clear from the beginning, if you look at survey survey data, that if Castillo was ever removed from power, it was impossible for Congress to remain in power and, and govern with whoever succeeds Castillo, succeeded Castillo, right? Over 80% of the population thought that if Castillo was removed from Congress, new elections should be called for, right? But Boluarte, for some reason, and you know, this has to do in part with the fact that uh, Peruvian politics is, is ruled by, by rookies, right? By novice politicians had no experience really and, and she decided uh, or was convinced that she should rule until 2026. So she announced it once uh, she took an oath, took the oath, right, for the presidency, she announced that she would be ruling until 2026. And I think that kind of started off because as I was saying, Castillo was very unpopular, but Congress was even more unpopular. Right, so people wanted new elections, and so immediately new groups, like some groups, started to activate pro- protests, episodes of protests. Initially, very few and isolated, but that started growing, and it started growing in part because of the repression. Right, repression made this spiral. Right, uh, it was a growing spiral of protest, and. Uh, Initially, to the most, let's say, spontaneous forms of, of protest, some groups that were more organized and kind of like tried to push for these other specific demands, like Constituent Assembly or Freedom for Castillo, uh, joined the protests, right? And again, the go- Congress and, and the government, particularly the government, had no response to this or no better response to this than repression, right? Precisely because, again, Peruvian politics is ruled by very weak politicians with very low legitimacy levels, right? So the government could not really represent people, could not really talk to people, right? So this democracy without representation, it was hollowed from representation, let's say, and it was filled with repression. So do we have a sense of what proportion of Peruvians support the protests? Is this a a case where it's, you know, a a loud minority? It sounds like what you're saying is that the protests are kind of the most visible uh, manifestation of a really, really widespread, deep-seated 
distrust and dissatisfaction with the Peruvian political class. Is that yes. is that fair? That's fair. Uh, now, there's one thing that uh, needs to be said, and it is that like most of the protests are taking place in the highlands and the south of the country, which is where Pedro Castillo had the most support, right? He was, in general, he was unpopular, but it was there that was the least, he was the least unpopular, let's say, right? Um, I think he didn't make it, he didn't, he didn't make it to 50% of support anywhere, but in the highlands and, and the south, he was you know, the closest he could get to that. Mostly, as you say, is dissatisfaction with the political system in general, with Congress, but it's located mainly where, where Castillo had most of his support. Just like when Vizcarra was removed by Congress in 2020, there was a massive protest too, but this time in the capital, right? So this is not the first time that there's this massive response to Congress demanding Congress to be closed and for new elections, right? 2020, we had the same thing, but it was in the capital. This time, it's in the highlands and the south, where Castillo was the most popular. Yeah, so so tell me a little bit more about the sort of ethnic and regional and class cleavages there, because I think that's really important to yeah. understand what's happening yes. here. That's really relevant. And it's interesting because, again, reading some of the news media internationally, what happened to Castillo, removing him from the presidency, it, it kind of uh, is sometimes read as a story of a champion of the poor being removed by the oligarchy, right? And it's only partially true insofar as you have to remember that the first one that fell in this cycle of instability was a right-wing neoliberal technocrat, right? So Castillo is but the continuation of a cycle of instability. Now, this specific president was supported by, as I was saying, mostly people from the highlands and the south, which is the most indigenous and poorest part of the country, right? Peru is has this deep socioeconomic, ethnic, and territorial cleavages that kind of shape politics, right? Uh, some of our outsiders or, of our, or, or of our most important outsiders, including Fujimori in, the 19, in 1990, were supported by that same group of people, by the highlands and the south, right? Uh, so th that's where most of the, let's say, chronic discontent or the most the deeper grievances uh, in the country come from and it makes total sense it's you know the the area of the country where the most uh, significant legacies from colonial rule can be seen right uh, colonialism in Peru as in many other countries in Latin America was um, uh, set, put in place a set of institutions to exploit local population right? The indigenous population, and that left a legacy of oppression and poverty that uh, lasts to our days, right? And Castillo became president with the support of that sector of the population. So it's only natural that that sector 
now feels that their president was removed from power by that other people, meaning people from the capital, the coast, and the north of the country, right? And if you see also the way people respond to surveys now, when they are asked about whether they support the military, for example, you see that, again, the north and the coast and Lima support the military, and the south and the highlands do not, right? So these cleavages that are organizing politics, even though proven politics is very unstable, those cleavages are very stable. To what extent are we seeing the the sort of fingerprints of the violence of the 1980s and, and 90s in these protests? I know a lot of the protests and, and a lot of the violence against protesters has been in the Ayacucho uh, region or department, which is also the, the focal point of a lot of the violence by both Sendero Luminoso and the military in the 1990s, which, as you said, led to uh, a huge amount of civilian casualties. Yes. And this is very, very sad because... One of the perhaps most important, as you say, fingerprints of violence from the 80s and 90s in Peru is not necessarily the continuation or the actual relevance of groups that are trying to continue with the armed path to power, but the cognitive legacy that this left in a significant share of the population and a significant share of politicians, right? So for decades now, different kinds of violence with different levels of organization, and let's be clear, the kind of violence that has been shown in this this last few days has been very important on the parts of protesters, has been met with the label of terrorism, right? That's the language that politicians and a part of the country have to label and to understand what happens in a country when there is social conflict and some level of violence, right? And that, in a way, legitimizes intervention of the armed forces and eventually of shooting, right? We have over 20 people dead now, I think 25 by, by mo- the most recent count. And one part of the population feels this is completely legitimate because these people are, quote-unquote, terrorists, right? Because, again, we're using the language from the 80s and 90s, right? Of course there are groups that could be legacies of the time of of those decades too that are organized and that look for like that use violence as a way to get leverage over the political system that's undeniable right they were trying to take over airports they take over uh, important uh, roads and so on that's undeniable the thing is is does this amount to terrorism the way we understood it in the 80s and 90s? Of course not, right? But it also legitimizes the intervention of 
organizations, political and social, that are linked in the country's imagination to the left and to terrorist left, right? So political parties that actually have presence in Congress saw their offices raided by them by the police a few days ago, right? Uh, due to this state of emergency. Peasant unions were raided too because they were the usual suspects, let's say, for terrorist activities coming from the left. So this language and this way of understanding conflict and violence, as I was saying, which is undeniable, is the most important, I think, fingerprint from the 80s and 90s. We have a word in Peru for, for this use of the word terrorism, this lightly. We call it terruqueo, right? When someone says, this guy is a terrorist, those activities are terrorists, are terrorism and so on, it's called terruqueo. We even have a word for it because it's used that frequently. Can you talk a little bit more about the the groups that you see as potentially taking advantage of the violence to kind of, uh, as you say, uh, attack airports, that kind of thing among protesters who are not part of those groups? Like what what kinds of people are there? What what coalitions are there? How much support do they have? It's hard to it's hard to tell with enough detail. In general, you have to consider that. Politics, particularly in the South and in the Highlands, tends to be more, less institutional and more like the strongest forms of contentious politics that you have in the country come from that region of Peru, right? Uh, in a way, violence, the use of violence in protests is also a sign of weakness. Like groups usually use violence when they cannot amass enough support to show strength any other way, right? Violence is used as a leverage when you have no other form of leverage, right? And, you know, over, over the years, we've seen uh, small groups, usually on the left, use different kind of like repertoires of, of protests that includes violence means like taking over roads and so on. They have never taken over airports. That's, that's certainly new. But to use these repertoires of, of, of protests once again and again and again and again, eventually develops a, an expertise, right? Uh, so I think that's, that's some of what we're seeing. Of course, there are radical, illiberal groups that are more willing to use this kind of violence than others, right? And that are have important presence in that part of the country. But then there's another set of actors which of which we know little, I think, and more research should be done on that. But it's informal economies. Informal and illegal economies uh, linked to informal and illegal mining or um, Coca crops for 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 drug trafficking and other sorts of illegal activities. They too profit from this, right? They too want a share of power, so they too seem to be uh, behind some of these more violent forms of protests. But for sure, 
is again a minority. The problem with Peru and the problem facing the government is not this violent man minority, it's the fact that over 80% of the country wants new elections as soon as possible. Over 80% of the country do not trust politicians, right? And yes, on that 80% and on those grievances, there is a minority that is very violent and that has violence as a way of getting leverage over the political system. But the most important problem to resolve, I think, is this distrust and the, the problem that politics should be addressing is that discontent and those grievances, right? So where do you think we, we go from here? We have people in the streets, we have violence against protesters, we have Dina Boluarte seemingly, I think, trying to hold on to power, we have Castillo in, uh, in detention. Do you think there will be a new election? What's your forecast for what might happen next? If, like, if you would have asked me this question on Friday or Thursday, I would have said new elections were coming. But now it's less clear. Congress was not able to agree on voting for early elections last week for two reasons. One, because let's say the far right in Congress was unwilling to, to in their words, concede to terrorists, right? They see early elections as a way of conceding to these forms of protest that they uh, deem illegitimate and, and that they should be met with repression only. And on the left, there was this calling for not accepting early elections unless they included a referendum for a new constitution. Right? So those two groups prevented Congress for calling for new elections, right? Interestingly enough, Fujimorismo was the only group in Congress that supported early elections. And there lies a key to interpret what's happening. Fujimorismo, with all its weakness, current weakness, because now it's very unpopular, it was, it's much more unpopular than it was before, is the only group that has some level of support such that they know if there are elections, they will be back in the game. But other groups in the far right and other groups in the far left, they have no such certainty. So if you don't know that you will be back in the game because Peruvian politics is so unstable, you have no incentive to reach an agreement for new elections. All your incentives are in holding on to power, right? Either holding on to power or using this specific uh, moment to push for a referendum for a new constituent assembly, right? So short-term, kind of short-term time horizons are leading votes in Congress. And with that kind of mindset in which politicians don't know if they will be here tomorrow, 
but they know they are here now, it's very difficult to solve the situation. That's why I was saying the main problem in Peru is that we not only have no parties, we have no politicians. We just have people that are in power for some short term, right? Without medium to long term thinking, it's impossible for democracy to work. And that's what you're seeing in Peru. So one more question before I let you go. How would you rate the stability of Peru's democracy right now? Are you concerned that it could take another turn toward authoritarianism? Or are all of the political actors on the stage sufficiently weak that this state of democracy by default, as you call it, will persist? Right. right. I was joking, half joking to a friend saying that this this week I was going to write a piece not called not democracy by default, but democracy by miracle. Because this equilibrium of democracy by default is is becoming more and more precarious, right? And this new turn with the military supporting the new administration is certainly a new element that democracy by default did not have, right? It basically is the result of, of, of what I've been telling you, this hollowing of Peruvian democracy, the vacuum uh, left by the weakness of political actors, the weakness of political parties that cannot represent society, that vacuum is filled by de facto powers, in this case, the military. Dina Boluarte gave a press conference some days ago, and the military took a significant share of the time that she had for that conference to address people. But not only talking about, you know, what they were doing, they were also making political claims, right? Political statements, which is something we did not have before. Boluarte also said to, uh, yesterday night that the 25 uh, people that have died in the protests, those were going to be investigated by uh, the military court, which is something you cannot have in a democracy, right? And it's something that we thought we would never have after the 90s. But now here we are, right? So this new development is bringing new uncertainty about where democracy by default is going, right? Is this civic military situation going to become a civic military regime? It's unclear. It's unclear if this is going to be an episode or a more sustained form of equilibrium that we'll see for for some years. In any case, it's clear that I think that new elections are now more uncertain than they were before because the, the Parties to the right of the political spectrum now are very happy with Dina Boluarte and with what she's doing, right? So they have even less incentives now to call for new elections. So we'll see how these things develop. But the only constant in Peru is that politicians remain weak and that instability, yeah, Like, instability is the only stable feature, I would say, of politics. 
On that somewhat ominous note, let's leave it there. Rodrigo, thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.